Welcome to the Zeal Interestings Podcast, where we discuss an interesting article or link from the week. I'm your host, Chris White, and my co-host this week is Randy Coleman. Welcome back to the podcast, Randy. Hey, Chris. Nice to be here again. Yep. Uh, and we have a special guest this week, Michael Hill or G-Paw. He's joining us. He had some great tweets recently and blog posts that we've just been reading and finding really fascinating. So we decided to bring him on and ask him about it. But the first thing, the very first thing I wanted to ask is, why do you go by G-Paw? Aha, uh-huh, a setup. <laughs> so I am uh, 58, and depending upon your counting algorithm, I have between zero and 11 grandchildren. And that's not unusual at all. But I became a grandparent when I was just 31 years old. My wife uh, is a little bit older than me, and she started young and, and had adult children, and they started young. And I was presented with my first grandson a very long time ago. And so, of course, my friends and family thought this was hilarious. So they immediately started calling me grandfather and then grandpa. And then within a few months had settled on G-Paw. And that was a really long time ago. So now I'm G-Paw to just about everybody. We just celebrated with my grandson his 27th birthday. So that's why it's (laughs) G-Paw. Well, welcome to the podcast, G-Paw. We're extremely excited to have you. Thanks. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. The reason that we reached out to you is we saw a tweet and it kind of spread around our our internal Slack. And it was that the fundamental notion that underpins all of your work, my work, and all my content is the root of our trade lies in makers making. The making matters. The makers matter. And you followed up with kind of an explanation of that. But can you give us the audio version of that explanation? Absolutely. So I started being a geek about 40 years ago. And in that time, almost all of our attention was on the made, the product. And, and you know, as expressed in code, but all the pedagogy was focused on, is this the best algorithm? Or here's a surprising new way to accomplish this or that or the other thing. All the attention was on the made. And the movement I don't generally like the word agile and I don't use it myself very much, but that movement began this 20 year long shift of us starting to pay attention less to the maid, not shutting off the maid. So not, not changing focus, but enlarging focus to include the actual making, the actual how do you do this instead of just what does it look like when you're done? So if you think about TDD, you know, TDD is not about the finished product. TDD is about how we make it. It's the making. And now I feel like with the new turn, which I'm delighted to see towards, well, the diversity movement within the trade, what I would call the humane turn that's happening around us right now, I see us expanding that focus even larger onto the makers themselves. So I find this incredibly exciting and that's all I want to do is, I want, I, you know, I'm happy to talk about the maid, and I think the maid is very important, but I think we have been overrating the maid for a long, long time. And I think out there in the trade, we're still actually probably overrating the making too, but I'm happy to see us broadening the focus to include all three of them because all three of them are of critical importance to our success. Yeah, I found that that tweet just kind of struck me really really well. So that's, uh, I'm actually the, the one who brought it to the team. And, and then you had a, another follow-up uh, maybe a week later or so. You started with always small, always better, always wrong. And it seems to me that that's 
one of the ways in which you focus on the makers and, and, and the making. Be willing to expand on that a little bit. Um, just kind of the overall sense I get from a lot of your, your tweet storms that you generally turn into blog posts uh, is, you know, the way to, to actually make lasting change in an organization is to basically do it small, always strive to improve something somewhere. And uh, then the, the always wrong was uh, newish to me when I read that of, from coming from you. Uh, so, so first of all, I mean, obviously, part of that mantra is marketing. That's why. That's why it's always wrong at the end because you like to make people say, "Wait, what?" <laughs> the great bogeyman in our trade, just talking technically, not in any other context, just pure geekery. The great bogeyman in our tra- trade is rework. It is changing a thing that you already changed once. And what the last 20 years have been teaching us is that that's fake. (laughs) That's just wrong. Changing something I already changed is so ordinary, so typical, so normal. It's an everyday part of my day. We never write code from scratch after the first two hours of any project. We are always instead changing code. Beck's book, the book that launched for me the movement, was the Extreme Programming Explained book. And the subtitle of that book is Embrace Change. To me, that is sort of so deeply fundamental to this movement. It is accepting the fact that we are not, we're not driving from New York to LA. We are exploring paths. We are pathfinders for a living. And when you're a pathfinder, the rules are very different from when the map has already been drawn. And that's the thrust of always small, always better, always wrong. Always small means that we take the smallest possible steps that we can take that that will have some detectable effect. Always better means that every one of those steps lives or dies on its own merit. It's harsh to say this, but it's about short-term gratification. The reason that short-term gratification, which sounds so corrupt and cynical, is so important is because I've seen us go too far afield. We're going to sacrifice for the next nine years because it's going to be so gold at the end. And that doesn't work. Not only do is it not usually gold at the end, but the sacrifices are extraordinary. And I always say always small as a result of that. And then the third one, always wrong. I brought up always wrong because, you know, I can't know that any given step is anything more than locally better. And it's not because I'm stupid and it's not because we're stupid. It's because this stuff is hard. It's really, really hard. And one of the <laughs> one of the axioms for me is, I am making it better right now, and then later I will make it betterer. I, I will, I will change it again. I will change it again. Change is just absolutely what I do for a living, and of course now I'm stretching that ultimately beyond the point of just changing code and into changing organizations. It's the same rules in changing organizations. If organization layout and structure and process were like a, a fixed, stable land point with, a, with a, a land map with a highest point, we could just aim for the, the highest point. But that's not true. <laughs> that's just not the situation. So as a result, we have to expect to be wrong. 
we have to keep our spirits up and our good cheer while we discover we're wrong. And we have to be willing to say, yeah, that was wrong. Let's go in a different direction. And so all that sums up into that little mantra. Always small, always better, always wrong. Yeah, I'm really curious about, it seems the metaphor stands really clear in my mind for software development, right? Make small changes, make them always small, making them always try to make them locally better and, you know, iterate if you're incorrect. How does that kind of expand out to organizational change? Like how do you make organizational change small and measurable and how does that go generally? I'm a counterpuncher by nature. (laughs) Most of what I say is in reaction to some dumb thing I heard somewhere. And in this case, I hear a great many people in boardrooms determining that some process that they read about in the airplane magazine, it was on the front cover, must be adopted right now. And what they try to do is install process and they install it from the top down. And what it creates is a technical term here, a living hell. I see. And I'm opposed to that. So my counterpunch is to say, no, nope, 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 nope. that's not it. (laughs) If you really want to make your organization agile, you make that from the bottom up and you make it by making small changes, keeping the ones that make things better and accepting the fact that you're going to have to change them again. I think uniformity is one of the most dangerous things to to be highlighted in the, in the trade. And I think that we place far too much bogus value on every team being the same, every team doing the same thing, and so on and so forth. And so the upshot of this is that, you know, it's actually fairly easy to point out to geeks that, after all, they spend all day long changing code, not creating new code. But it's actually a good deal more difficult to explain this as we move up the ladder. But nevertheless, there are people who get it. There are plenty of managers and all the way up to plenty of executives who look at that and they're like, oh, that's where we went wrong. (laughs) They're like, yeah, we tried that from the top down and that's why we hired you (laughs) because that didn't work at all. (laughs) Changes are so funny, right? It could be the smallest change. You could... One of the first things I do when I work with teams, I work with a lot of teams who do stand-ups and they do them so badly. What did you do yesterday? Well, basically I surfed kitten pictures. What are you going to do today? Well, I guess I have to work. (laughs) Are there any blockers? You mean outside of my own personal lack of engagement and interest? No, there are no other blockers. (laughs) This is what most stand-ups sound like. And they're, they're awful. They're terrible. It should be different every day. It should be different every day. Every retro should have a different leader. Every retro should start with a completely different opening. Forget the three questions there, just as you forget the three questions during stand-up. So little tiny changes like that, though, add up. They add up. And one of the weird things that happens is that when you first start out, you see all these sort of problems of difficulty one, and then problems of difficulty 100, and then problems of difficulty 1,000. Solve the ones. Because once you've solved the ones, a lot of those hundreds turn into twelves. <laughs> and once you solved all them, a lot of those thousands turn into twenties. And it's an amazing thing. And I learned it from code. I learned it from learning about refactoring. 
and learning how refactoring works, that you have to clear away the brush before you cut down the trees. And most organizations are full of brush. And so that's how it goes when I'm actually working organizationally rather than geekfully. That's kind of cool that that applies across there because, I mean, I've done a talk a few times uh, kind of as a workshop of just teaching really, really baby step refactoring. And it's interesting when you go through that exercise because clearing away the brush not only clears away the brush, but it also starts to give you a, a feel for the shape of the trees in the forest. And so it gives you the insight you need to do the rest. And it's really cool that that applies to organizations as well. I think it really does. I think it really does. That's kind of a... That's recent terminology for something I've experienced a lot over the last 10 years, right? Sometimes you have to invent new language to understand what's going on around you. But yeah, I suddenly realized, hey, that's the same as in the code. That's awesome. The, uh, the, your point about stand-ups and retros kind of growing stagnant, losing their purpose, you know, it's something that I've definitely seen uh, in, in various scenarios working with their different people. Ignoring the fact that you just said that it depends on, on the organization, it's always different. What are some of the ways that people, that these sorts of things grow stagnant and, and what are some of the, the things that people do or the steps that people take to kind of take away that stagnation and, and add purpose back to those? I genuinely try to vary, retros especially, dramatically. I mean crazy dramatically because... What I'm trying to do is freshen, right? I'm trying to freshen our energy. I'm trying to get weird, strange takes. I do that to a lesser extent with some things like stand-ups, but I do it to a greater extent even sometimes with stuff like, I don't know, grooming backlogs, which to be completely honest is not something I think is a very important task anyway. But just the same, I participate in a lot of organizations where that's part of their process. I'm like, well, let's do this a different way today. Instead of staring at Jira up on a big projected screen with the 12 of us, exactly two of which are engaged, and the the other 10 of us are so thankful we brought our laptops. (laughs) Well, let's do something different. I put these out on a piece of paper. Here they are. They're all out. They're on a bunch of pieces of papers. Here's what you can do. You can make one move. Go pick up a story and position it somewhere in the queue. That's all. You got one move. We'll do that until there are fewer than, I don't know, until there are fewer than three moves (laughs) made in any given round from our dozen people. We'll go with that. That's good enough. (laughs) We did it. (laughs) That's awesome. That's a a pretty good suggestion, I think. Yeah, so, so you've been working as a coach for a while. It sounds like you know you're you're coaching on agile or, or things that you don't like to call agile processes. What sorts of experiences have you have you been bringing recently? What has been like the big things that you've learned recently? So I should say something first about that agile thing, right? My problem is I think that I'm sick to death of branded methods. Gotcha. I think that they're not helping. The package. Yeah. The package is not helping. Yeah, it's just not helping. I mean, it helps the people who advocate them, I suppose. But it doesn't help the people I actually wanted to help, which which are the organizations. So that's why I resist I even resist the meta brand of Agile in in general because it has itself become so tainted by brand names. So that's that part of that. For the last 10 years, roughly three quarters of my work has been with what in the coaching trade we call VBCAs, Very Big Corporations of America. And that's a Monty Python illusion for those of you who aren't familiar with it. And in these very large organizations, you actually find that they very often have policies and committees that are specifically dedicated to the prevention of software. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you, you encounter these software prevention units in these organizations and you're like, okay, that's problem. Typical example, I work with a lot of companies in IT departments, right? So they keep their dev servers under lock and key at all times and under a huge limit. So you might have a dozen people operating on one dev server at one time in order to develop and test code. This is on its very surface insane. This is not how geeks work and it's not, it, it's just useless. It's a horrible, horrible idea. Convincing people <laughs> that dev servers are actually cheaper than 12 devs stepping on each other is a big part of my job. <laughs> you know? I remember a job where where the the concept was that developers had to have slow machines that were more representative of what their users were going to be using so that we made sure that we got the performance dialed <laughs> in right. And, you know, so I've, I've been sort of in that realm once or twice and didn't like it. I, I work with orgs all the time that are trying to jump onto the microservice world and those are hilarious. You're expecting me to develop code with 15 dependent services. There are 15 services I have to depend on for my service, and I share them and all their data with hundreds of other people. And it's like, okay, that's not possible. <laughs> that's, just, that's, that's not just undesirable. That is not a possible thing. You can't do that. You know, one of the first things that I do at these organizations is I teach them how to stop thinking that the only place that their code can possibly run is on that server. What if we actually shipped the server and the local instance at the same time so that any geek on the team could run your server right here on their own box, in their own copy with their own data? And this idea, of course, is just a breakthrough idea for them. It's simply, it never occurred to them. And the reason is because going back to made and making and makers, A, they never ask the makers, and B, it completely ignores that software is in continuous change. And three of those servers are down 15 minutes every day because a new rev is being released, even if it works, which frankly, it usually doesn't. And internets go down and everything goes down and it's simply... It's like it pays zero attention to the making. It's all about, oh, well, in the made version, all the microservices work all the time, 24-7. So we'll just build for the made version. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I know, right? We're not going to need a car when we get to Manhattan. But we're not in Manhattan. <laughs> so we're going to need a car. This is, what I, <laughs> this is how I try to explain it to people. It's like, yes, I know that when we get... When we get to the city on the hill, it's going to be awesome and we can throw all that crap away. But in order to get there, <laughs> we're going to need some things that aren't going to be there when we get there, right? Some things that are only used to get us there. And that's what I try to do. That's what I try to do. So you found that people get into trouble when there's so many different services and they're trying to build against assumptions and then the actual systems don't exist and so they're how would you not waterfall in that situation where you're waiting on something that you that you need to exist or or even just like development resources to exist right you're you're locking yourself into failure because you've guaranteed that there's no way to do this except a weird broken lock step or more realistically stutter step because 
I have to lock against your last week's shipment, not against what you're shipping this instant, because we did not build the software so that I could actually build against what you're shipping this instant. So I think I've seen this in some of your earlier tweets, but I understand you tend to try to work kind of down more at the geek level than up at the executive level. Is that... Yes, I'm very often invited in by top-level people and they want me to work with their direct reports. And I'm like, well, you know what? That's not going to help us as much. I tend to spend 90% of my time on, well, I guess if we think of it as a building, on, on the first three floors. The folks who are down on the ground actually making stuff, <laughs> the folks who are running them, <laughs> and the folks who are giving them guidance about what to run next. And it's not true that I never go upstairs because I quite often have to go upstairs to help those folks. But the ones I spend my time with are the ones on the ground because they're the ones closest to the making. And that's where I can help. Is that a kind of a personal preference thing or is, is that just you found that that's the most effective place to be working? And, the, and so that's the way you can bring the most value to, uh, to your clients. So you asked me an or question there and the answer is yes. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> I prefer to work with them, and that is where I did, where the most value comes from. Cool. Is there like a a reason why organizational change fails when it's coming from the higher levels? Like, what what patterns have you noticed when people try to like we're going to institute new practices, and all the developers are going to use this, and and then that fails? Uh, is it because it just fails to to recognize how things are actually being done? Or so here we are on a on a podcast and many of our listeners are are listening to the podcast maybe in a browser maybe they have a download or whatever and would you let one of those users tell you how to set up your microphones not necessarily unless they knew more than me <laughs> unless they knew more than you people who do not make the products that we make for a living do not know more than i do about making those products they're lovely people. They have great ideas. I don't think we should shut out ideas from anywhere, anytime. But I don't tell my plumber how to put the pipes together. I tell my plumber, I need hot water over there. Can you do that? And my plumber says, yep. And then he goes for the blowtorch. I'm like, wait, wait, no blowtorches. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> that's not how it works. So that is the reason why I, I tend to tell them to free these people up to do what they're good at. And they say, well, I'm worried. I'm like, because you don't trust them, right? And they're like, yeah, I don't trust them. I'm like, well, you don't have a choice. <laughs> That's an excellent point. You know, I feel you. I really do. And obviously, when I find somebody who's one of my reports who I don't trust, you know, I do something about that. But the bottom line is we are dependent on, you know, just like we're dependent on our product owners, to know the marketplace, same rules apply here. I, I'm dependent on those geeks to know how to program. <laughs> That's a great point. I got to let them program. I got to let them figure out how to solve these problems themselves. I don't have to specify solutions. I have to specify problems. If I could make one recommendation to the standards organizations that exist inside these organizations, I would make this. I would say, you're not allowed to specify any standard in any other format than to describe the problem you wish to have solved. Classic example would be inter enterprise source control. I understand the problem you're trying to solve. You, you want a log. <laughs> you want 
uh, remote storage. I get it. There's a thousand ways to solve that problem. None of the best ways involve software that was written in 1974, dressed up with a really ugly 1980s web interface. And I try to explain to them, you should make a rule. It's got to be remote at this repo. And it's got to have a log. And the log's got to identify who pushed it. That's enough problem for me. That's a problem. That's what I need to know. And if I know that, I don't care how you do that. But so many organizations, of course, buy into the idea that uniformity is the only way to go. Right. It would be completely unpalatable to them to think that their engineers would use more than one different system for those, depending on what part of the organization they're in. Right. Very shocking to them, that idea. And of course, it isn't just geekish stuff. It's, there's lots of other, other stuff around that, too. Story, you know, what belongs in a story and what doesn't? How big can a story be? These sorts of things have the same sort of, you know, you go to a large organization, you'll find that you're surrounded by rules that people feel they have to honor and standards that specify, you know, useless templates, templates that don't help given teams at all. I'm like, well, you know, maybe we should let them do their work. Yeah, I find stuff like that tends to come in as a reaction to something. You know, there's an exceptional case and suddenly there's a bunch of new process to deal with that one exceptional case. And eventually the weight of that tends to start to crush everybody. Yep. 10,000 employees and you have one of them who steals. Do you know what you should do with that? You should fire him. If you want to, you should prosecute him. You shouldn't make rules to prevent people from stealing. We already have that. It's called the law. And you get this sort of thing, that same thing carries over into so many aspects of large-scale corporate life. It's like, yes, I know that happened, and I know that was a bad thing, and these new rules are not actually capable of preventing anyone from stealing, and they are capable of preventing honest people from getting their work done. You're going to divert the energy of the organization into how to get around the new rules instead of how to solve the problems you're trying to solve, basically. Dig it. That's a beautiful expression, Chris. That's a perfect expression of it. Optimize for the rules, not the outcomes. I've been on lots of teams that optimize for the rules and not the outcomes. So if there's one big takeaway from posts we've been talking about, what would you want that to be? And at the end of the uh, always small, always better, always wrong, I believe you made a comment about how much power to change things we have in our hands and how we should take advantage of that. Is that your big takeaway there? Or is there something else that's a bigger deal to you there? Well, there's probably bigger topics, but within that domain, I, I would say it like this. I would say, you know, Bob Martin's back of the envelope calculation is that the doubling rate for geeks in the world has been every five years for the last three and a half decades. That doubling rate exists because of the extraordinary demand for the services that we provide. That extraordinary demand means that we actually have a staggering amount of control over our lives. I don't know that that will persist forever. I know that it is certainly true right now. I would tell those people down at the first three floors, and, and I don't mean to only value geeks. You know, I know, I know lots of very skilled people down there who work in completely non-technical areas. I would tell those people, you can change this. You can change this because they are utterly dependent on us to do this. And if you need help, reach out to me or any of the other coaches in the world. Get out there and find the documents that counter these magazine covers that these folks read and change the world. 
change the world. That's what we started to do 20 years ago. And, and a thing I said in another post not so long ago was just this. If you think that those of us who founded or, or came in very early on like me in this movement and who've spent the last 20 years trying to promulgate these ideas, if you think that we're satisfied, well, you underestimate us. And, you know, what, what I would ask of, of every person who's down near the bottom of these organizations is keep changing things. Change things. You can do it. We did it. We didn't get what we wanted yet. We're going to keep working on it, too. You're saying you were, you were always wrong? I was always wrong. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm climbing Mountain Stupid right now. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> well, I, I love that as the place to start wrapping up. I want to invite G-Paw. Uh, is there anything you'd like to bring our readers' attention to? Uh, any, any links or, or things that they can look at? So I'm easy to find. It's G-E-E-P-A-W-H-I-L-L. Put an at before that and you fit, found me on Twitter and Facebook. Put a gpawhill at gpawhill.org and you found me an email. And of course, the website is thus gpawhill.org. I, I blog a couple times a week. I've spent the last year and a half learning how to shoot the kind of video that I want to shoot. And I'm getting ready to enter a period of heads down, almost continuous video production. I welcome conversations with strangers. I really do. I'm an introvert, so... You won't see me in a big crowd of people. But if you want to reach out, ask me questions or make comments on any of this, please do. Please do. That's fantastic. I'll look forward to seeing some videos in the near future. Yeah, the ones you've done so far have been great. So I definitely recommend people to find those and, and watch them. There's great stuff in there too. So Cool. Excellent. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want even more interesting, my friend Randy here and our mutual friend Frank put together a nice newsletter every week where they collect articles that they really like uh, and links and summarize them, make them easy to consume. That's at codingzeal.com slash interestings. Or you can follow us on Twitter at codingzeal. Thank you.